Well, I want to begin tonight with, um, with a huge understatement. It is hard for us, I believe, to grasp what was communicated by God when He said, uh, and it was good. We try, but no matter how we define it uh, or how we describe it, no matter how eloquent or resplendent our words may be, our word pictures may be, it all falls short of what paradise was actually like immediately after creation. We, we can't truly, I don't think we can truly comprehend what it means for everything to have been made exactly according to God's design and purpose. I don't think we can understand the profundity of the statement that everything reflected His goodness. The goodness and magnificence of an almighty and holy God. I don't think we can fathom a state of complete purity that is absent from any imperfections. I don't think we can truly appreciate um, that when Moses said God finished His work, that that meant everything that God intended to do, He in fact did. There was nothing omitted. There, were, uh, there was no second guessing. There were no regrets. There was nothing lacking. When he was through, the form and the fullness was exactly as it should be and could be and needed to be. There wasn't anything that needed to be repainted or repaired or replenished or replanted or repositioned. I also think we fail to apprehend that not only was man the crowning achievement of creation, but that the purpose of creation was for God to dwell with him and with them. And forget about getting our heads around putting these two things together, right? Forget about coming to grips with his declaration of everything being good with His purpose of dwelling with man. Because what that tells us is that the best and perfect provision for man was His provision of Himself. It means that God was what man needed. It means God was what man needed most. It means God was the ultimate source of our fulfillment and of life. 
Now, what does that have to do with the fall? Well, being removed from and, and losing access to the lavishness and beauty and richness of the garden was a travesty. But the ultimate loss on that faithful day was loss of fellowship. It was loss of union and communion that man had with God. They would live, they would live on for a while. I mean, I guess a while. Adam lived for 930 years. But they died spiritually that day. They died spiritually that day because they were cut off from the one in whose image they had been created. They had been cut off from the one who had breathed life into them. They had been cut off from the one who sustained their lives. And let me be really clear, they didn't just lose the fellowship. They didn't just give up the fellowship. The fellowship that they had didn't just slip out of their hands. The fellowship and union and communion that man had with God was rejected. It was, well, they rejected Him, they rejected His Word, and they rejected His relationship with them, His fellowship with them, and with one another. And for what? Let's look and find out. You'll find the outline in the normal place in the back of the bulletin. Four points tonight. We're going to look at the rejection of the Lord, the examination by the Lord, the declaration of the Lord, and then finally the provision from the Lord. And children, you're going to find your words in their normal place as well. So as always, though, let's pray before we continue, okay? Uh, Heavenly Father, in these moments, please give us humble and contrite spirits. Open our ears and eyes and enlighten our hearts and awaken our attention and keep us from all worldly wisdom. Attend with power the truth preached. And may your people be convicted and edified and refreshed and comforted. Please grant me grace and fill me with your spirit and use me this evening as you see fit. And I ask these things for the sake of Christ and for the good of his church. Amen. Well, let's look first at the rejection of the Lord. Let's look at verse 1 together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Uh, the serpent is not allegorical. Uh, the serpent is as literal as Adam and Eve are historical. And its craftiness and its shrewdness was a positive attribute. Everything was good. It was very good. But somehow Satan had decided that he could pervert that goodness and use it to his own advantage. Now, how did he use uh, his serpent uh, instrument is a mystery, of course, to us. But the relationship between them was so close that Paul will um, 
he'll apply the fate that we're going to read that the serpent will face in verse 15. He applies it specifically to Satan. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes this benediction, the benediction that we read, by the way, all of November and December. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, we have no reason to believe that all animals um, talked pre-fall. We need to consider it an anomaly that pointed to the anomaly of sin in the midst of the goodness of creation, but the, the serpent or snake spoke nonetheless, and he began with a question. He said, did God actually say you shall eat of any tree in the garden? And in asking the question, he revealed a few things. One, he revealed that he himself had either heard uh, God give Adam the command, or he heard Adam give it to Eve. We'll see this reinforced in just a minute in verse 4. Two, he revealed that he was willing to twist God's word and to use it for his advantage. And three, he revealed how crafty he in fact was. You need to think about this. His one question caused Eve to dismiss the fact that the snake was talking to her. And we know that because she, she listened and then she responded. Rather than chase him away or call Adam to go get a shovel. It also began to, in this question, began to take her attention away from all that she had and placed it on what she didn't, as if God was withholding something from them rather than lavishing good upon them. And and he turned God's command into something that was burdensome and absurd rather than loving and kind. And finally, it, was also, it also led her to entertain the fact or entertain the possibility or the idea that God's Word could be questioned and that it was subject to judgment. The bottom line is, the serpent in this question begins to cause Eve to doubt She doubts God, she doubts His Word, she doubts His wisdom, she doubts His judgment, she doubts His fairness, she doubts His goodness, everything about Him. And we know that based upon how she responded. Verse 2 says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And her answer, when we think about it, is a complete train wreck because she failed to accurately communicate what the actual command was. She subtracted from it, right? She said, we may eat rather than we may surely or freely eat, which diminished what the Lord had actually provided. She also uh, subtracted from it when she said, you shall die, instead of saying, you shall surely, uh, we shall surely die, which weakened the consequence. But then she also added to it by tacking on her own command, and in the process, the, the command of neither shall you touch it, and in the process, placed herself in the position of lawgiver. 
And then, of course, she omitted the real motivation for obeying. The motivation wasn't fear of death. That was the consequence. The real motivation was the fact that God had given the command. Children, you've heard this, I'm sure. Because I said so. That's not a bad thing. And with that, Satan knew he had her on the ropes. Even though she was maintaining her obedience at this point, he knew it was only a matter of her external obedience. Um, He knew it was only a matter of time before her wavering and her lack of maintaining the integrity of God's Word was going to lead to denial and betrayal. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Again, he must have heard the command because Eve hasn't given the command as, as it was spoken. But here, the serpent speaks the negative of the actual command. And while he didn't come right out and tell her to eat, this is the final tactic and it seals the deal. He lies and he tells her that there wouldn't be any consequence for disobedience. And by doing so, he began or started what has become a centuries-old practice of denying the fact that there is judgment for sin. But he doesn't only deny the doctrine of judgment. He challenges the integrity of God by claiming he had selfish motives for giving the command in the first place. Look at verse 5, he said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good of evil. He said, you know, God's holding back from you. He's telling them that, he didn't, that God didn't want them to be all they could be. He knew that if they ate, they'd be divine like Him and, and they would have wisdom. And He didn't want them to have that wisdom because if they had that wisdom, they would become autonomous. They wouldn't be in subjection to Him anymore. They would be their own sovereign and over their own lives. In the words of Derek Kidner, it's a lie big enough to reinterpret life, to be as God and to achieve it by outwitting Him is an intoxicating program, he says, but God will henceforth be regarded, consciously or not, as rival and enemy. And here's the irony. The lie was they could be like God. But the truth was they already were. They weren't divine, but they had been created in His image. They were of His kind. And if you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago, they were rational, they were reflective, they were relational, they were responsible. The lie was they could have it all. What was the truth? They already did. They had no need. They lacked nothing. They were satisfied. They only knew abundance. They they did not know want. They had everything. You've heard me say this two weeks in a row. They had everything they needed to succeed, even one another. And they were in unencumbered fellowship with God. The lie was that wisdom was theirs for the taking. But the truth is, the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom. 
As one commentator put it, the only proper posture of man if he would be truly wise and lead a full life is faith in God and not a professed self-sufficiency of knowledge. And so when it was all said and done, in the words of Derek Kidner, the tempter pitted a bare assertion against the word and works of God and presented a, a suicidal plunge as a leap of faith. And in the next two verses, Moses tells us that she took that plunge. But rather than leap into life, they fell to their deaths. Verse 6 says, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. Now remember, the fruit hasn't changed. It's not like on this particular day, it's now beautiful and tastes good. It had always been beautiful and tasted good. So the fruit hadn't changed. What had changed? Eve had changed. First, her mind had changed toward God's prohibition. She was no longer convinced that God and His command was good and right and could be trusted. Her heart had also changed regarding her own inhibitions, right? She was thinking about what she didn't have and could possibly gain while neglecting what she already had and could possibly lose. And her delight and her desire reached a level of covetousness that we heard about in Sunday school just a little while ago, which of course led to her downfall. And as a result, she saw, she took, she ate, and then she gave. And Adam took it, and he ate it. In the words of Alan Ross, Adam needed no temptation with clever words. He simply went along with the crime. His way that led to transgression was willful conformity. He willfully crossed the line without any persuasion. And we don't know if he was there from the beginning of the conversation, if he showed up in the middle or if he came at the end, but when she took and ate, he was there and he failed. He failed in his responsibility to lead, guide, and direct her. He failed in his responsibility that he had been given by God to be the prophet, priest, and king of the garden temple. And his passivity led to their demise. Not only their demise, but ours as well. For when they fell, they took every one of us with him. Every human being with them. Listen to Shorter Catechism question and answer 16. The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. 
And it didn't take long for them to realize the fatal mistake. Which brings us to the second point, the examination by the Lord. What Satan said would happen if they ate, it happened. Their eyes were opened. But what they saw is not what he said they would see. In verse 7 it says, Then their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked. And this means far more than just the fact that they knew they didn't have clothes on. It means that before, we have to remember, before their disobedience, they were holy and righteous and pure. And in the words of Paul from Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 4, because their consciences were pure, their nakedness was pure, because God had created it, and they received it with thanksgiving. It was good. But having sinned and having corrupted themselves, what they once saw as pure was now defiled and corrupted. And because it was defiled and corrupted, they could no longer receive it with thanksgiving. What was a gift, again, had been rejected. And the fact that they had seen each other in that state brought a significant depth of shame. And to deal with the shame, their first response was to sew fig leaves together and make loincloths. It was the first failed attempt at works righteousness. And we know that because of how things proceed. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. I mean, let's, let's think about this. What, that, what the day before was probably... Um, what was probably the most exciting and comforting sound they could hear had become terrifying and dreadful. And knowing their fig leaves weren't enough, they hid. They didn't want to be discovered. And children, let me, let me ask you, have you ever done that before? Have you ever done something you knew was wrong, and then you ran and hid because you thought if mom and dad couldn't find you, they wouldn't know that you had done anything wrong. Yeah. And I say it that way because guess what? So is every adult in the room. We've all done it. It's our first response, is it not? We want to hide what we've done. When we've sinned, we don't want anyone to find out, right? The same is true today as it was then. Sin leads to fear, and fear leads to hiding. The word we use today is it leads to isolation. But the Lord didn't allow them to hide in their shame and fear. Verse 9 says, that the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And of course, Adam, realizing that hiding was futile, responded and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. And so the Lord doesn't, doesn't let him stay there. He delves a little deeper and he says, wait a minute, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? 
And in verse 12, Adam finally answers the question, but not before he throws his wife under the bus and then has the audacity to say, God, you did it. It's your fault. And in so doing, he revealed that their sin had caused a significant fissure. Not only between themselves and God, but between themselves. Fellowship had been destroyed all the way around. In verse 13, we see Eve follow suit. She attempts to blame the serpent. But notice, that's where the examination stops. God doesn't go any further. He doesn't doesn't examine the serpent because the purpose of the examination, the sole purpose of it was to bring Adam and Eve to a place of repentance. He wanted them to admit what they had done and that, to admit and to acknowledge to God what they had done and, and to agree with God that it was wrong. And, the, and Satan, his fate was sealed. Grace and mercy was not for him. It was for Adam and Eve alone and, of course, for everyone else who followed them who would look to the promise that God was about to make. Which brings us to the third point. The declaration of the Lord. In verses 14 to 19, God pronounced judgment. And He pronounces judgment on all three of them. And in these declarations of judgment, He proved Himself to not only be righteous and just, just, but He also proved Himself to be gracious and merciful. He, He revealed, and He also revealed... Very important, he also revealed that there was already a plan in motion to repair the damage they had just done. In verse 14, the Lord declared that the serpent would be relegated to a life of humiliation. And not only would he live in humiliation, he would be in a perpetual battle with the woman and the future offspring of the woman that would ultimately lead to his defeat and death. And we know it would lead to his defeat and death, and it was inevitable because God placed enmity between, uh, uh, an easier word for us in the words of Legan Duncan is he drove a wedge between the woman and and the serpent and between his offspring and her offspring, and in the process, protected her and her offspring. For the sole purpose of protecting the one, the woman, through whom sin had come, in order that in order that she would be the one through whom the one would come. The one who would take care of and deal with sin and salvage that which was marred beyond usefulness and make all things new. As we learned in November during Aaron's sermon, this was the proto-evangelium, or the first giving of the gospel. The other way the Lord ensured the survival of the offspring was by declaring that the woman would continue to experience the blessing of multiplication. However, giving birth to and raising children 
would now include increased pain and sorrow. And who, those of us who have had children don't understand that. But he also said that the blessing of marriage would continue. But Eve's usurping of Adam's leadership would create issues. It would become a pattern. And that pattern and those issues would be exacerbated by the fact that that Adam and those who follow would overcompensate for their passivity and would begin domineering and being oppressive, leading to a constant clash. And who of us don't understand that as well? Finally, the Lord declared that the man would con- continue to experience the blessing of work. But from that point forward, it would now be accompanied, again, by sorrow. It would be a struggle due to the obstacles that man would face, that he would encounter, and it would be a source of heartache his entire life. Because the only thing that was going to bring an end to that toil was death. And it's interesting that this is the first and only place where death was mentioned in relation to Adam and Eve. Despite the fact that it was the consequence promised back when the command not to eat was given. So death did remain certain. But His grace and mercy, God's grace and mercy were not only put on display, they were put front and center. And that brings us to the last point. In verses 20 to 24, we see the provision from the Lord. Moses wrote, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now let us reach out his hand and take also, and lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove him out, drove the man out, and, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Four things quickly here. First, Adam believed the promise God had made. And we know that because he names his wife Eve. She is going to be, she's going to be the mother of all the living. Who are the living? Those, the offspring. The offspring plural. The offspring singular. Second, due to their sin, they needed clothes, and, and, and they needed to be covered. And as we saw earlier, the fig, fig leaves would not do. They would not do because clothing themselves would not do. They needed to be clothed by another. And this, of course, provides us the first picture of the sacrifice of an animal and blood being shed to provide that covering. 
Thirdly, they, their removal from the garden was both necessary and gracious. It was necessary because they had forfeited eternal life, which was dwelling with God, fellowship and life with God. And it was gracious because if they had eaten of the tree of life in that condition, they would have lived eternally in a state of sin, separated from, from God, separated and alienated from God and from one another. And finally, the angels being placed at the entrance on the east side of the garden was to make sure that it was impossible for them to re-enter on their own. Any attempt that they made on their own to enter would be opposed. The message was union and communion with God would only be possible on His terms. Man cannot bring it about on his own. God must do it for us. And again, I encourage you to, to study that motif of the temple garden, and we'll refer to a little of this next week as well. So what do we take away? What do we take away? Several things that I thought about this week, a couple of things I gleaned from others, um, kind of along the, the theme of, of, of lies and truth, I want to share a few um, and encourage us all not to fall for them, okay? I want to run through them quickly. First of all, don't, don't fall for the lie that happiness and holiness are not compatible because the truth is they're inseparable. Secondly, and, and this one's really obvious, or we think it's obvious, but it's exactly what Satan dangled in front of Adam and Eve and we see what happened to them. Uh, don't fall for the lie that to become, God, to become like God or to be like God, we must disobey. I mean, we go, well, yeah, well, that's what they did. They were told they could be like God if they didn't do what he commanded. The truth is, to be like God, we must obey and do what he says. Thirdly, don't fall for the lie that we can place ourselves above God and His Word and place it under our authority and our judgment. The truth is, we are to place ourselves under the authority of God's Word. We are to place ourselves under its judgment, and we're not to subtract from it or add to it in any way. And we're definitely not to distort it for our own benefit. Don't fall for the lie that says there's no judgment for sin. The truth is hell is a real place. And God's wrath is awaiting those who do not repent of their sin and who remain in their sin. Christ will, we say it every week, Christ will return and He will judge both the living and the dead. Don't fall for the lie that says we can cover our own guilt and our own shame and appease a holy God through our own works. 
The truth is, Christ is the only one who can fully take our guilt, who can fully take our shame, who can fully pay the debt that we owe to God for our sin. And He has done so and will do so for those who repent of their sins and turn to Him in faith. Don't fall for the lie that says there's, there are no slippery slopes. The truth is, if we're not careful, and we don't, if we don't pay attention to the ploys of our enemy, and if we pay attention, and we don't pay attention to the upside-down standard of the world, remember, good, good is evil, and evil is good, and if we don't pay attention to our own flesh and its desire to feed itself, we're going to see, we're going to take, we're going to eat, we're going to give it. And others are going to eat, and it leads to death. Don't fall for the lie that says sin is liberating, and that freedom is found only as we serve and live for ourselves. The truth is, sin leads to guilt. Guilt leads to shame and fear and isolation, and then death. Listen, just practically speaking, if you have a friend and you've slowly watched them or or noticed that you're not seeing them as much, go find them. Don't wait. Don't fall for the lie that says... There are sins too great to be forgiven. You hear me say this all the time. You heard me say it last week. Because the truth is there is no sin so great that it can't be forgiven. Period. And finally, don't fall for the lie that says God is just waiting for you to screw up so He can bring down the hammer of judgment. Because the truth is God desires to forgive us more than we desire to repent. He's waiting. And we could go on, right? There are a lot of lies that we are tempted to believe and sometimes we fall for. I want to take the last couple of minutes and just answer that question that I asked at the end of the introduction, which is, for what? For what did Adam and Eve reject God and His Word? For what did Adam and Eve reject the unencumbered relationship and fellowship that they had with God and with one another? And the answer is simple, to gain a counterfeit version of the divine fulfillment that was already theirs. And if they did it, in a state of holiness and righteousness, do you know how susceptible we are to do the same thing? But here's the good news. In the words of Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer six, God created man good and in his own image, that is in true righteousness and holiness, so that we might truly know God our creator love Him with all our heart, and live with God in eternal happiness to praise and glorify Him. He created us for a relationship with Him and with one another. 
And while Adam and Eve rejected Him and rejected His Word and His wisdom and His goodness and His fellowship, the Lord God has done everything, everything to reconcile us, to reconcile you and me, and to restore what was lost in them. He has made sure we will not die in the state of sin. He has created a wedge between us and evil. He uses the judgments that He, he gave to, to all three. right? And those judgments are used today while we experience them in our own way and we, we understand and, and, and know what those judgments are. He's, he uses them to remind us that all is not as it should be. Nor is it how it will always be. He's kept the promise of a seed of a woman. And that seed has saved us. Because that seed is the Lord Christ. The Lord Christ who Paul calls the second Adam. Who did what the first Adam chose not to do. Unlike Adam, our first federal head who wanted to be like God and who, who failed to obey and forfeited the glorified life that had been laid before Him. And had been given everything to hold on to. Right? Had been given everything you needed to hold on to. it. Christ, our second federal head, in the words of Paul, did the exact opposite. Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross for us. He was led out, remember our study of Luke, he was led out into the wilderness where he faced Satan. And he refused to rely on his own wisdom and instead rested on the Word of God. He refused to relinquish his, his authority and he subdued his enemy. And he did so through suffering, just like the Father had planned. He overcame Satan's temptation and then fully and finally defeated him on his cross. And Paul says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He took on our shame and he put our enemies to shame by triumphing over them. And through his work, paradise will not simply be restored, it will be made new and better than before. In other words, those in Christ, those of us in Christ will receive even more than was what, what was lost. In the words of Calvin, Adam by his fall ruined himself and those that were his because he drew them all along with himself into the same ruin. But then he says this, Christ came to restore our nature from ruin and raise it up to a better condition than ever. And brothers and sisters, we need to help one another to not dwell on or disregard what we think we don't have and could possibly gain. 
We, we need to help one another to appreciate and attend to what was once forfeited but has been reclaimed for us and that is now ours in Christ Jesus. We all have abundantly far more than we could ever ask or could imagine having. We've been lavished with gifts. Paul tells us that we've been, we're in possession of every spiritual gift in the heavenly places. We lack nothing. In Christ, we have the best and perfect provision for man. which is the provision of God Himself. He is what we need. He is what we need most. He is not only the ultimate source of our fulfillment, He is the ultimate source of life itself. We have been united. We have been united to Him in His life, death, and resurrection. And we commune with Him by His Spirit. And one day, we will be like Him and see Him as He is. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together.